Hello and welcome to IRI Growth Insights. I'm your host, John McIndoe, Chief Marketing Officer here at IRI. IRI integrates big data, predictive analytics, and forward-looking insights to help companies in the CPG, retail, healthcare, and media markets grow their businesses. We also share our thought leadership with the industry at large with the goal of addressing and tackling key challenges in our industry. In this special episode of IRI Growth Insights C-Suite Conversations, our special guest today is Vivek Shankran, President and CEO of Albertsons Companies, here to talk with us about COVID-19 and its impact on the CPG and retail industries. Vivek joined Albertsons last year, and prior to that, he was the CEO of PepsiCo Foods North America. He's been a great IRI partner for many years. When COVID-19 broke out, Albertson's company committed an additional $50 million for hunger relief. In Vivek's vision, Albertson's is a locally great and nationally strong company, leveraging its $60 billion in sales to support well-merchandised and well-run local stores, underpinned by technology to support its productivity. Leading the conversation today is IRI CEO, Andrew Appel, and our president of strategic analytics, KK DeVay. Gentlemen, over to you. Thanks, John. Um, first of all, Vivek, congratulations on all of the uh, early successes you've had at Albertsons. It's been a privilege to watch, and uh, we're excited to, to have some time today to hear a little bit about it. Thank you, Andrew. The, uh, so the first, we want to start with just a little bit more of a fun question, which is, um, you know, what's, what positive things have been keeping you going outside of, of, of Albertsons and outside of work over the last five or six months? Hmm. What positive things have been outside of <laughs> <laughs> Rituals. You know, the crazy thing is I, uh, because I'm here, I'm not traveling, I'm in Boise and I travel, you know, a little, little bit of travel to stores um, and uh, we don't have that friction of travel time on different things. I'm playing a little more golf, Andrew, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm uh, torturing myself with that once a week at least on the weekend, and, but I enjoy it. It's my little break away from the day to day. Oh, good. Well, look, let's start with uh, you launched an IPO in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah. In a recession and a period of difficulty and civil unrest. Um, all the while keeping the company organized, motivated, and creating great and stricter cleanliness protocols. Tell us a little bit about the strategies that are getting you through all of this uh, difficult environment. You know, in the opening, John talked about this notion of being locally great, nationally strong. Uh, I'll tell you something I, I admire about our culture, and clearly I inherited uh, this aspect of it. You know, it's a, when the two companies came together in 2015, I mean Albertsons and Safeway, uh, uh, there were two very different cultures that came together. One, that the Albertsons culture that said, we, are, we, are, we allow our store operator, that we want our store operator to be like a CEO and make decisions locally. And a Safeway culture that said, we believe in leveraging scale, right? And so to me, uh, the, the team ma has managed over the years to bring both the best of both together. So I'll give you an example. Um, so one of the challenges you had in, in the early days of COVID was supply. Just getting, get, getting your hands on 
chicken and any other types of meats and such. And, and so while we were here orchestrating relationships with some of the largest, um, largest distributors for restaurants who, who had food but couldn't get it to restaurants, uh, in each local market, the teams there were building local relationships with a whole host of other distributors. It's a fragmented market. Yeah. You have some big players and then it's a very fragmented market. And so that combination, I think, to me, it was, it was always about getting safety right, moving fast on safety, personal safety for our associates. We knew if they were safe, they'd make the customers feel safe. And it was about supply. And we, we, were, able to, we were nimble on supply. So it's one of those great examples in my mind of a culture, an organization, um, and the way a company runs, making a difference in a very unpredictable environment that we were in. I mean, nobody knew what was coming next. You had to be so nimble, and it's the culture that enabled that. And I think it will continue to pay off as we go forward. You know, we, we keep learning. How do you leverage the scale? How do you maintain that entrepreneurship? That is the essence of our cultural challenge. That's interesting. And any thoughts on, um, since you, were, you spent a lot of time with Pepsi, yeah. And in a, in, in, a, in a very senior role, any contrast between your life as the CEO of a division of Pepsi versus of running a major retailer? The biggest difference for me, um, in, in the CPG role, uh, you are one step removed from the customer. As much as we think we are connected with the customer, and we are, and we focus a lot on it, you're still one step removed from it, right? So it's always the your day-to-day interfaces through a, a body of research or, or through a retailer. Um, to me, I, I, it is fascinating in this in, in the retail environment that the, the, the amount of uh, interaction and uh, it, I tell people it, when a customer gives you, tells you something, it's not, don't judge it as right or wrong. It's just real. The word is real. Accept it, react to it. If she likes it, she's coming back. If she doesn't like it, she's gone. And, and that, that harshness um, of that customer interface at, at, in retail is uh, uh, both fabulous, um, scary, uh, but it keeps you on your toes all the time. I think that's a massive difference. And it happens thousands and thousands of times a day in every little store that we've got. Big difference. Yeah. Yeah, well, like just to build on that, right? So your background then should really help you a lot with dealing with CDG manufacturers, right? Because you've seen both sides of the of of the fence, if you will. So yeah. how how are you kind of leveraging that background to kind of serve your shoppers better? Yeah. So uh, you know the notion of. Uh, having joint business plans, uh, getting together with the CPG companies. We can't do that with everybody, and we were able to do less of that in this uh, environment. But having that kind of planning so that we can bring what we are seeing with our customer base to them, right, as early input, uh, those are things that that, will make a difference. Um, We need to do more of it. Clearly, we need to do a lot more of it. Uh, I think uh, having a sense for... You know this. We knew this before. I see this even more now that while while we are America, we are actually extremely diverse at a very granular level. Right? Yeah. I can tell you there are stores in Seattle that you could the stores are three miles apart and one store sells predominantly red onions and another store predominantly sells white onions. Okay? 
Um, but that's that's because somebody locally understands that and makes that difference. And so America is still extremely local um, yeah. in taste. You know, those are things that we can work with. Um, but but to, to me, I, I, I and I think the and, and there's where the innovation and what what CPGs can bring uh, matter a lot. Uh, and then the third is, is uh, I, I think it's another opportunity is that if you again start with that customer and what happens with that demand signal. There's so much opportunity in making our supply chains more efficient. We have so much we can do. We have, as the Albertsons companies, all of those as opportunities in front of us. You know, we recognize that. You know, we think it, it's 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 how we leverage our scale um, so that we can make that interface with our CPGs even better for our customers. A journey we're on. With the, the pandemic, do you see this business planning, joint business planning that you may have traditionally done? You know, once a year or maybe you know twice a year. Uh, how is that evolving? Right. I know it's only four or five months, yeah. but I'm sure it's kind of not the good old days when you know you went with a you know an assortment plan or an innovation plan or a promotion plan. How, how is that evolving now? Yeah, I, I think I see it in two ways, KK. First, there's a lot that you cannot predict. You know, yeah. we thought COVID's going to be better in June. Yeah. And now it's it's looking tougher, so it's important to recognize that you have to be more nimble about acting in shorter term windows. Yeah, faster, and those who react faster will do better. Um, so so that the, there's the in the longer term, I think it's a real paradox for uh, there's this heightened level of demand, but I can empathize with a CPG leader who's going, but do I really add capacity now or not? You know, yeah. a CPG company is held to a very high standard on ROIC, very high standard. Um, and, and so for them to add capacity, you really have to get your mind around, is this demand uh, a, a secular shift or, or it's just it's, it's for six yeah. months? Yeah. Yeah. I imagine a lot of them are going through that challenge. So I, I can appreciate what they have done in uh, reducing the number of SKUs so that they can keep longer runs. Uh, but I tell all my CPG partners, our CPG partners, uh, that you were innovating in the past for a reason. And that reason was the customer. Yeah. And the reason was the diversity in America's customer. That's not changed. Yeah. Okay. That's not changed. So uh, I, I, hope, I hope they continue to bring the innovations to retail that was such an essential part of their growth and our growth and the vibrancy in retail that we had pre-COVID. Yeah. Just to build on that, right? So what has changed and what has not in your mind? I mean, today, I, nobody has a crystal ball, but, you know, you're seeing a lot of shoppers. You're, you know, you've, you've seen, you know, being in CPG for a while. So what do you think are the few key trends that are going to change and that are going to stay? KK, when we worked together a, a year ago, year and a half ago, we would talk a lot about this notion of on the go. Remember that? It yeah. was on the go, on the go, on the go. Yeah. And it was true. It was very real. Breakfast was on the go. Lunch was yeah. on the go. For heaven's sake, even dinners were on the go. And yeah. we talked about how um, many of us have grown up in a, uh, in, a, in a family structure that sat down for an evening meal. And we talked about how that, that just blew up, right? Yeah. Mom was running between four, four sporting events and coming back from work. And so people, uh, that's, it's so amazing that, that that degree of emphasis on being on the go has just disappeared like that, right? 
Um, and so now we're seeing a lot, lot more of people eating at home. Yeah. Okay. Um, the things that are growing in our store are all those meal-centric items, baking items, meats that people are going to cook, spices, et cetera, et cetera. You can see meal-centric behavior coming in. Uh, and then, you, and I think two things are happening. One is I suspect people are just, uh, while we're all, you know, there's a lot of sameness to our lives because we're doing these calls every day like this. But on the other hand, I'd encourage you all to think about, you know, what a great opportunity to have a meal at home with family. Um, uh, so yeah. many evenings a week. I mean, maybe we'll never get this opportunity again, but you're getting that. And I think people are recognizing that that's fun. You know, I'm connecting with my family again in ways I didn't before. Um, and then I think you have, we're all realizing too that uh, working, working remotely, I'm not going to say working from home, but working remotely is not such a bad idea. It's not so bad. And so I think those two forces, in my opinion, are going to make eating at home more sticky than not, mm-hmm. or longer than we think. Those two mm-hmm. forces are going to be pretty powerful to get people to eat more at home. Um, yeah. And I think that's the single biggest shift I'm seeing, you know, less of that on the go, more of that uh, prepared, uh, long a, pl- a trip that I'm going to shop for the week, maybe it's bigger baskets, lesser trips, more complete baskets in one store. That's the trends that we are seeing. And I think that's going to stick. And, and that has uh, just, just on that topic, right? And that has immensely benefited grocery. Grocery used to kind of donate share to other classes of trade for 15, 20 years. Yeah. But suddenly grocery's importance has picked up in the last three, four months. Uh, yeah. So has online uh, e-commerce, which has accelerated. Yeah. How do you see those two trends evolving, uh, Vivek, from your perspective? Uh, on the online, I think it is accelerated. I, I don't know if the rate of acceleration will stay the same. I imagine it will level off to a point, but I think it will stay at a higher level than pre-COVID, right? Clearly in my mind. And then it might get back to that same level of acceleration. When it does though, what it really does for all of us is that because it's accelerated, it's got to a different level of scale. When a business gets to a different level of scale, your ability to accelerate that changes. See what I'm saying? So uh, you can can do more with it. And so I think it's also, also my belief is that the rate of acceleration will stay as slightly higher than pre-COVID, right? That's on the e-commerce. I, I think it's fabulous. Uh, it's what customers want, and we're going to give yeah. customers what they want. And you're seeing the yeah. sector at large responding uh, 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 to that point. Uh, now, with regard to grocery itself, uh, you have you step back and you go, if you're going to, if you're going to cook a lot more at home, um, you want you want quality in your produce. You want quality in your meats, and yeah. and you cannot freeze produce. So you want you go back to where you have that differentiation in the fresh side of that store. Yeah. Um, and if uh, and then if you say I want to reduce the number of trips I'm making, then you certainly want um, to complete your basket in a store. Yeah. Grocers tend to be typically really good and fresh, and tend to carry variety. Right, yeah. you want gluten free, you want organic, um, yeah. and, and you got both. You you got it in our stores. You got it all in our stores, and I think that's helping too. This notion of completing your basket. Yeah. Do you think if you paint forward in a scenario, 
scenario that you know the world returns to some normalcy that um that some of these behaviors will continue about you know you know fresh and and it's interesting that you you're um, the first thing you thought about was the quality of the product and the fresh and then kind of filling out the baskets versus you know the efficiency of time that it just goes through to go to the store in this environment where people you know want to get in and get out quickly and don't want to spend a lot of time. Do you envision that you'll be, that this will stay and, or that um, maybe even leaning towards the actions you're taking to really connect with these consumers and retain them over time as they've come back to the grocery environment and and hopefully are having a positive experience? Yeah, Andrew, that is clearly our objective is to retain these customers to come out of this uh, of pandemic uh, with a higher baseline business. That's clearly the objective, right? Uh, uh, and we have the loyalty program and other things that, and so we understand customers at a granular level and, and we're working to keep them, um, uh, uh, keep them shopping with us. Uh, I'll tell you the, go back and, uh, KK, you showed me this data for years. And if you go back to 2008, nine, if I'm right, the math was around, I think in 2009, about 42% of the dollars on food and beverage dollars were in, away from home. Yeah. By 2020, it was 51-ish, okay? So take 10 years, 80, 90 bips. So it's 80 bips a year that shifted from home to away from home. And that happened, and dollars, I'm saying dollars now. Yeah. That happened in the greatest economic expansion we can all remember in a long time without a COVID, without work from home uh, as context. Yeah. And so even in the best scenario, let's say we're down 10% now, if 10% shifted the other way, yeah. I think it's slow, slow, it's going to be slow getting back to that. But you have a recession, you have work from home policy, philosophy, policies, and, and you still have a pandemic um, and worries around it. Uh, so that's why my my hypothesis would be, if I were betting, I would be betting towards this behavior becoming entrenched for longer and the mm-hmm. shift away from home taking longer than it did in the last decade before yeah. COVID. Right, Andrew? Yeah. And so, uh, which is why I come back to, and if that if you accept that behavior, then you're going to go back to fresh. But look, I, I, think, I think we're all going to be trying to provide people with more convenience, prepared meals and so on in our stores too, as we yeah. are. And switching topics a little bit, as you think about, you know, we were just talking about e-commerce and the role of technology in changing re- the retail landscape. How do you think about um, technology or reinvention impacting, you know, Albertsons as an organization? I've been on this uh, story for a few years now about this the passion for technology, and I the way I articulate it to people is I, I, I tell them to take their phone, you know, pick your phone up, go to your first page and look at the apps on that. Okay. Is there any app there on get to your first page that you don't use? Typically the answer is no. Is there any app that works nine out of 10 times? No, no. There's an app that fails one out of 10 times will not be on your phone. Okay. Is there any app that takes 30 seconds to get going, no. Yet in the in our lives in business, we tolerate all of those things. You know, we'll say, hey, yeah, yeah, most of the time it works. 
it's a little slow. I mean, it, you know, I get that circle and it's a little slow, but it works. It's, it's very, very helpful. And we talk like that. We, in business, we've accepted this notion of mediocrity is okay in technology. And I, and I think it's, I don't understand it. As human beings, we leave the office and our, and our expectation of technology just go up 10x, okay? Um, and, and so I think it's first, I believe we all as companies have to just embrace that if it's helping us in our personal lives, it should even more help us in our professional lives. That's step number one. Uh, I, I, I believe that for, you know, we've all gone through lean and we've gone through Six Sigma and we've done all those things for decades now, right, in, in business. And I, I think we're getting to the place where if you want to jump on a new S-curve on productivity, you want to jump on a new S-curve on growth ideas, you want to jump onto a new S-curve on managing data, you have to use technology. You just have to embrace it. So, Andrew, I, I, there isn't a part of the business where, that I look at where my first question is, what are we doing with technology? What are you going to do with technology for growth and productivity? And that's how we think of our strategy. There's a growth agenda. There's a productivity agenda. There's a technology agenda that, that is supporting growth and productivity. And there's a talent and culture agenda that's supporting all three. You think about the... Um the three to five most transformational areas or ideas, any thoughts on um, where you see the biggest, you know, opportunity to use technology either for let's, let's use your friend growth and then productivity. Customer facing stuff is a huge opportunity, whether it's getting more granular with the loyalty engines we have, getting more granular about the demand signals that we're getting into our stores and into e-commerce, being able to predict the order pattern that we're going to get in e-commerce. Um, and when I say technology, Andrew, I'm including data in it, okay? It's, uh, yeah. I, mean, I don't mean just don't think robots. I think, think the harnessing the power of data too. Uh, so there's so much you do that are uh, oh, having the demand signal so you're better in stock, sending it all the way through the supply chain, all of those things. I think that's one part of it. Um, there's technology and productivity, right? It's automation, automation of, of, uh, of all of the work that we do in our DCs, um, automation in, in our stores. There's, so there's so much of that that are productivity-centric. There I am thinking robots i am thinking of those types of physical the physical activity that you can do that you can do more efficiently with it um and 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 so to me that's how i uh, you know to me i always the lens i'm always putting on it is it, it has to be helping our growth priority or our productivity priority otherwise it doesn't have a role i will tell you that we're also doing a lot on on, on creating just the, the infrastructure a cloud-based infrastructure um so that it can be more flexible malleable um, and it served us really well. You know, we saw this huge spikes in our e-commerce business, um, omni-channel business over the last several months. And we were delighted because we were on a, on a cloud. We just expanded it nicely. Amazingly, the, the, te the technology was not our constraint um, mm -hmm. growth over the last uh, few months. You did touch upon it, the data and the insights. Yeah. How is that uh, embedded in your digitization efforts at Albertsons, right, with the, with the aid of technology? Like, do your merchants use them? You know, do they use it routinely? Is there a transformation going on there? Yeah, it's uh, never enough, right? We, we, yeah. never, none of us is going to be, and you guys certainly are never yeah. going to be satisfied that anybody is using enough data, but <laughs> as they should. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but, but to me, 
I, I uh, see in, in, our, in our business, we think of the world as, as we should, as a retailer, we think of transactions, we think of customer count, think of basket size and so on, okay? That's one part of the data that we use and, and how do you, ma- and those are the input signals that you manage the whole business too. You look at it granularly, you look at the demographics around stores, so on and so forth. Uh, but the other piece of data that we use is to think about, increasingly we're thinking about what's the lifetime value of Andrew, you know, um, uh, and, and is he engaging more or less, his household engaging more or less with us? Are they engaging in more of the categories with us? What can we do to create more lifetime value and stickiness? Um, and that's, in, in, for me, that, so there is the data, there's the, I don't, you'll have a better way to describe it, KK, but I think of it as temporal data. It's, the, it's what I see and act on on a narrow window. And then there's the longitudinal data. Yeah. I learn about the Andrew, the Appel household over time yeah. and how I'm able to create more value for them and in turn create more value for us. Yeah. It has been a, been a um, pet surprise of mine in the industry, Rebecca. I think we talked about this a year ago about the fact that this industry seems to think most purchases are separate from the prior purchases and that the interactions with consumers don't seem to create, you know, future positive or negative change in their behavior. So I think it's fascinating. And so therefore it's a source of opportunity, right? Because I don't think it's an industry that's traditionally used lifetime value concepts and, and therefore doesn't make decisions where maybe the short-term benefit is flat, but the long-term benefit is high because it's, somehow creating, you know, loyalty and more trips. I mean, it, it, it's, isn't that, a, isn't that a, a surprising, right, Andrew? There you, have, you have telephone companies that you may transact once every three years with them on a serious basis. You know, you're using them every month. They think of lifetime value, yet you transact three times a week with us. And we don't think of that. No, that's, I think that's the opportunity for our whole sector. And by the way, in, frankly, for the entire it's not just us, but the chain behind us. Yeah. Well, and if you think about, you know, one of your largest competitors that's highly e-commerce related and based in the Northwest, yeah. you know, I think LTV and customer acquisition and retention and growth and things like that is effectively the business model. You're exactly right. Wire consumers, penetrate those consumers and create loyalty that then increases the breadth of the wallets they spend on you. Um, Hey, I had one interesting question back to transforming the company. And um, as you think about technology enabling the organization, um, there's one school that says you want to make the access to the information or the prescriptive analytics easy for the end users. Um, So call it the, the Google search model of, you know, the future of a merchant or a marketer. And then there's another that you want to make them all really good at using the tools, right? Create more sophistication in the employee. So it's like a, one is a, you know, make it easy. And one is a make everybody better. Do you have a thought on that? Just as you've been thinking through the transformation of the organization? Uh it's an interesting way you frame it. I hadn't thought about it that way before, Andrew, but if I reflect on it, I think the more you get into, so in a store environment, if I'm trying to get 
the grocery uh, the grocery team to order frozen better okay uh, in the their primary uh, objective in that technology, the question you should be asking is, have you made their life simpler? That's it. If you've made their life simpler, they're going to adopt it. If you've made their life harder, they are going to ditch it. I mean, there's no, there's no, and I would, that's, that's what they should be doing, right? So when you put an automated ordering system, you know, you want them, you don't want to massively deviate from what they typically do. You just want that information you feed them to be more accurate, better, and and over time that they actually trust that it's the right thing for them. But it's, it makes it easier because they don't have to count as much or et cetera, et cetera. They can spend less time ordering and spend more time taking care of a customer. Uh, I, I think there are, that's one scenario. I think there are other cases where uh, when I take promotions, uh, I want the technology to challenge even the way we do it, right? Because you want technology and data and the science behind it to even challenge what we choose mm-hmm. to do and how we do it and when we do it. Yeah. And so you want the technology to actually transform processes. And, and so I think it really depends. But I would lean towards, if you're trying to change the behavior of 200,000 people um, every day, 10 times a day, super easy. Every all day, the 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 sophistication is way behind. It happens in the background. Yeah. If you want to change uh, uh, two hundred people on a very important topic, uh, then the technology should enable fundamental change. Is how I think about it. And we have a little bit of both going on. Yeah. No, it's just interesting when you started with the kind of paradigm of. You know, you open your phone, look at the apps, they have to work and they have to be fast, that it leans you to a, and you think about our lives as consumers, most of these mega cap companies, and you know, are easy to access the information. They've made your life easier, right? Your app stores, your Googles, your e-commerce platforms. They're not highly sophisticated, you know, voice, Alexa, devices, Google Home, all these things. So that's kind of why, you know, why I asked the question. It's interesting to think about, you know, especially since you started with that paradigm of the consumer. The fair, even on the, even on the ones where I'm talking about where we want to change process, uh, I will tell you that um, the user interface and the ease of working with it is still extremely important. You know, it's, it's the place where you get the biggest noise. Uh, even when it's a very sophisticated, because I, uh, I, I think the reference point is the apps that you got over here. You know, that's what's yeah. setting the bar on what's easy now. Yeah. Hey, I want to kind of tie a couple of points that we have discussed, um, just regressing a little bit back. We talked about customer lifetime value. We also talked about uh, uh, consumers and you know, new consumers, etc. Recently. Uh, you have acquired a whole slew of new consumers and shoppers, mm-hmm. right? What are some of the things that attracted them to you? And I think you may have partly answered that already, but uh, what are your plans to retain them and get the maximum value uh, from them and also offer the maximum value to them? I think the, you know, in terms of why we got them, uh, there, there, it's a layer of layers of things, KK. It, it starts yeah. with the fact that you, we, we have stores in some terrific locations. You know, yeah. The fact that we've been around for a long time, our stores 
are in markets and retail locations that are close to where people live. Okay, uh, then you add to that the fresh assortment and the variety, and both are important. Remember, it's the complete the basket mindset. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so I, I think those are the layers that, and then you know our ability to be really nimble and drive the agenda. Um, and uh, provide them with what they came looking for so that they're not disappointed and they come back again because they feel, mm-hmm. we want the customer in today's world, you want them to feel like yeah, I can go there and reliably get m- almost everything I want. You just, you need to have that confidence. Um, give them that confidence rather. Yeah. Um, our, biggest, our biggest engine that allows us to retain them is first continuing the, what I'll call the, uh, the fundamentals of everything I just talked about, right? Keeping yeah. that going. But then having that more granular approach through our loyalty program. Yeah. Uh, that's, the, that's the added feature besides running a great store every day. Uh, the loyalty program and everything we can do there to make sure that we retain them uh, both on the freq- frequency and all the size of the basket. That, that's mm-hmm. what we're putting a lot of our energy into. Mm-hmm. And I, I should also tell you that uh, a lot of customers have now shopping with us or spending more with us because of the omni-channel capability we have. Yeah. But that also is a is a data-intensive transaction, if you see what I mean, right? We are, yeah. you know, they are, and what they are. So that's another one that gives us the opportunity to retain them. Yeah. With the recessionary behavior anticipated to come, yes. with unemployment benefits kind of coming down, stimulus check coming or not, we don't know. Uh, and we all anticipate that the consumer is going to be a lot more careful uh, going forward than the last three months because of uh, you know various stimulus put in. So how, how are you kind of um, uh, fine-tuning Albertson's value proposition to appeal to those you know value-conscious consumers, which we all, as the industry, anticipate the recessionary behavior? Um. The, f- the first thing uh, I, I, I think you've got to recognize is that uh, uh, this recession, unlike the last one, uh, is a lot more uneven across the country. I literally mean by zip code, okay? Yeah. There's a great article today in the New York Times um, on some, some research done by, uh, about the granularity of unemployment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so you've got, to, you've got to first recognize that. And... And so uh, our approach will be granular um, to address yeah. that, right? And the way you address that is by making sure that in, in, the, in the markets that matter, that we have a, a deeper value for those customers that, that mm-hmm. need it, right? And that can come in mm-hmm. many ways, right? Pricing, pack yeah. size, uh, different assortment, a better own brand presence um, in those markets, uh, and uh, we know recessionary items, the categories or items within categories that tend to index more in a recession. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important in this recession to take a much more granular approach because it was not a, it was not led by a financial sector that just you know affected everybody. It's yeah, yeah. sectors are struggling more than other sectors, and if you happen to be in one of those in a particular um, market area, you'll suffer yeah. more. I mean, the, the consumer there is struggling more. Yeah. And, and how do you think about your uh, own brands, right? How, how do you anticipate? I was just looking at a list of all of your own brands, a long list. Uh, yeah. What, how are you thinking about your own brands uh, 
you know, for the recession, but also beyond the recession. See, there's another thing that changes from yeah. perspective. We change perspective on when you come from CPG to retail, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I love own brands. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and the reason is this, uh, the way in our own, uh, actually, KK, if you go back, gosh, you go back 10, 15, even 10 years, 15 years, own brands used to be the, 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 the proper value proposition own brand was it's a lower price point. Yeah. You compromise some quality. Quality. But that has changed. Yeah. You can't win with that anymore. We're yeah. gone way back. Today, yes, there's a role for own brands as an opening price point, but the consumer is not going to compromise on quality. Right? There's that. But the bigger excitement about own brands is the innovation we bring. Our fastest growing brands and own brands are O Organics and Open Nature. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're fastest growing because they give cus- uh, the, our customer uh, some source of differentiation, um, something special. Uh, and in open nature, like I love our open nature cauliflower pizza. It's just fantastic. It's a great product. Okay. And I can't find that anywhere else, obviously. And, and so mm-hmm. I think uh, when you take your own brands into that kind of a direction, it starts becoming a destination. Not all of it, but a set of items. Yep. You know, a, a, a few items in that store start becoming a destination. And yep. she's going to come back for that. That's, that's how I see it. So there's an opening price point, but then there's the innovation. And that's where I feel, I think, to me, uh, a CPG company today, um, you, need, you need to be investing in your brands and your innovation. There's going to be A brands. There's going to be B brands. But if you're a C brand, well, it's going to you should be thinking about it, it, it's a dangerous place to be in my mind. Yeah, in that in that because what what's the role of the C brand? You know, we've got choices we can give customers. Yeah. Do you see um, the own brands playing a role back to customer lifetime value and customer loyalty? Is that also part of it? And are you seeing that happen as you roll out? higher quality home brands? Yeah, we, we are the people, the, the, our customers who shop, who index more on own brands are spending a lot more with us, you know. Um, it's always, I always worry about the cause effect of those kinds of things. But, but clearly, we clearly, to me, I think of, I think of, you need to have things in your store that are destinations, right? Um, CPGs are not destinations because by definition, their ambition and business model is to be omnipresent. Okay. So the destinations have to come from fresh and own brands. Mm-hmm. And it's those destinations that bring people back into that store. It's those are the two. We have fresh things we can innovate around. Um, and it's the own brands you can innovate around. Any other branded player uh, has no incentive to make it a destination uh, for any one retailer. One of your ex-colleagues, kind of in describing you, said Vivek is one person, one leader in the company. This was in your previous company. Uh, in whose office when I go and come out, I feel good. Even if he is kind of being critical of my work or providing me coaching, we always feel good when we get out of his office and we are inspired and we are motivated. Now with um, you know, 22,000, 2,200 stores all in 34 states with this very, uh, very, very innovative local culture, 
Uh, how do you inspire? What's the magic trick by which you inspire all of your colleagues with that? Oh, okay, okay, that's a nice compliment from, from my ex-colleagues. But uh, uh, look, I love being out there. I just, I just get so much energy, right? And I get so much energy from when I visit a store, when I'm meeting people. I get so much energy from it. And I, um, I'm trying to learn from everybody, and and um, and you know I, uh, I, I I'm 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 in this role because I've had many lucky breaks. I'm a very lucky guy, you know. I got I was lucky to get a visa to come to America first of all, you know. <laughs> and so, um, and so I've had a lot of luck, and I've had a lot of mentors, and and so that, I I think I just and and I in some ways I. I I'm very grounded in that belief that, you know, they, they just, I am who I am. And, uh, and so when I'm interacting with people, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pay that forward in some way. That's all, you know? And then when I get out to the stores, I actually learn so much from it. I, here's one thing I know. I know that if we are two, we're 300,000 employees strong. I know that 299,000 999 employees know more about retail than me because I'm the newest member of this family. So, and so I am always in a learning mode and I, and people love to teach and talk and I get a lot from it. I, I wish I knew I could give you a better answer, but. Oh, that's great. Thank you. That's, that's, that's what we thought. Yeah. And do maybe the last, a last question, Rebecca, to build on that. Um, which kind of a link back to your, you know, having now been in the role you've been, if you were running into yourself two years ago in your prior role, hmm. what advice would you give to your prior self of things that you think you should continue to do and things as the leader of a big, meaningful packaged goods company that you'd be like, you know, if I was... Um, <clears throat> I was redoing what I was doing. Here's a couple things I might be thinking about differently. I wish you have such a great question, Andrew. If I, if I ever one day had a chance to go back in time to be the CPG leader I was, I would spend more time in stores and I would spend more time in stores beyond my category. That's the mistake I made. I, you know, I thought of my category as my world and maybe it's true in some ways I should, but the, the, the category is always part of the broader dynamic of a store. And if I had sat down and understood what's going through a retail leader's mind around that, and by the way, it's an online store or a physical store, but it is that, it is that managing that interface with the customer and what we are trying to accomplish. I don't think I had an appreciation for that. You know, I was, uh, in some ways, I'd argue that, at least personally, I don't speak for other CPG leaders. I think I was myopic. I was myopic. I was credible. Um, I was deep, but I was myopic um, from a from a retailer standpoint. Fantastic, Vivek, Andrew, KK. Thanks so much. Really, a, a wonderful uh, conversation. Some tremendous insights imparted through our our dialogue here. Just to recap, a couple of the the key things that I heard. Um, Vivek, you talked about the importance of maintaining an entrepreneurial culture and, and really um, acting with speed and agility and nimbleness. 
you talked about the role of manufacturer and supplier collaboration and really acting within shorter timeframes given the pandemic is, is obviously so critical. You also talked about maximizing assortment to meet evolving demand and um, really looking at what is going to deliver the most value to your customers at that immediate time. And then you also talked about supplier collaboration and, and working with your partners, your manufacturing partners to continue to innovate and keep up and maintain those innovation efforts for consumers and keeping them at the center. Um, I thought your comments relative to the, the tremendous shift around on the go and eating at home and that trend resurgence, having long lasting stickiness beyond the post pandemic and, and bringing that ritual back to um, to life, uh, I thought was, was quite interesting. You also talked about the role that e-commerce is going to play. It's playing today in the omni-channel experience, but how that likely will extend post-pandemic and creating an, an integrated experience for your customers, underpinned, of course, by the importance of understanding consumers um, at very granular levels and maintaining that approach um, as you attract and retain and of course expand your loyal customers the role that data and technology play and how not only albertson's but also your manufacturing partners need to embrace technology and the use of of greater data data and technology to to bring to parity business technology like we do in our personal lives and the importance of bringing that same level of of technology to what we do every day um, in our business world. Finally, uh, you know, as we head into the recession, your thoughts relative to what's, what's ahead for, for consumers and the, the real need to address um, consumers at, at very granular levels based on their unique situations and that no two customer, customers are the same and really understanding and having a deep um, depth of knowledge about what they're dealing with and then tailoring your offerings from a value assortment and pricing perspective to really deliver and meet their needs. Uh, one big tip I got was trying out Albertson's cauliflower pizza. I've not tried it, but I will be getting to it soon. Finally, I thought your, your perspective on, on learning and, and really, uh, really working to understand um, what you're learning each and every day and trying to take that forward was really, uh, from a leadership perspective, was really, was really compelling. So. Thank you for that. One thing to add, um, which is, uh, you know, a mix of congratulations and thank you, Vivek. The role you play as the leader of a large grocer and the, uh, the importance that, that that organization plays in kind of making sure that Americans are safe and fed and get, you know, get the right opportunities and then leading three, 300,000 people who I'm sure his lives are better through your leadership is, um, you know, something we should all be appreciative of because it's a, it's a daunting task and it's a, and I'm sure you feel like it's an honor and it sounds like you're doing a fantastic job. So, so uh, in our own little way, we think about that same role somehow to make people's lives better, but the impact of, of you and your organization on the lives of tens of millions of people is um, shouldn't be forgotten. For our listeners and viewers, uh, this recorded conversation will be available at our website at iriworldwide.com. We hope you'll take the opportunity to review our other COVID-19 thought leadership, including valuable reports 
and a dashboard of economic indicators. Thank you all and appreciate everything you do for us. Take care, thanks so much. Thank you for listening. Please become a subscriber and let us know what you want to learn more about. We'll serve it up in a future IRI Growth Insights episode. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to review IRI Growth Insights. Also, visit us on the web at iriworldwide.com and connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. 